This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Hi, welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Today, it's my absolute pleasure to have a conversation with Nora Burns. I first got to meet Nora when she was the president of NSA Colorado. And I was blown away by her vision and how far she went to help every individual in the community. And that's the day I really wanted to know a little bit more behind this leader who helps other leaders be successful. A little background about Nora. Nora Burns is a highly sought after workplace culture thought leader that business leaders always want on their side. She believes in starting at the grassroots level and by feeling the pulse of organizations as the under, undercover candidate and the undercover employee, and we'll have Nora talk a little more about them. This gives us this amazing advantage where she gets to know the firsthand knowledge of leadership and workplace culture. And she uses that insight to brands like Hunter Douglas, CDC, Gabriel, US Forest Services, uh, and Racetrack on path to sustain long-term wins. So welcome to Secrets to Win Big Nora, the leader who makes leaders successful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So Nora, let's just start at a bigger picture because today I really wanted to understand about your vision. What's your secret to achieve the vision that you have? What's the vision and how do you get to that vision clarity? Uh, oh, that's a big question. So my vision comes from shifting perspective. For me, in order to have a really clear vision of what's going to happen down the road with any organization and their leadership and their teams, you need to take in the whole. So instead of sticking strictly to the executive suite and executive row, I think you need to take in perspective of what is the candidate experiencing, what's the customer experiencing, what are short and long-term employees experiencing, and culminate that into the combination of, of insights that come across all of those different viewpoints in order to get a really successful vision of the organization. I love that. And you know, to me, I think the moment you said that right away, it starts hitting me hard by saying, you said it in simple words, but how many times we walk in and even without knowing much of the organization, we realize that those sitting on the executive level at the highest level of the company are literally having this incredibly fascinating view of the organization, which is literally completely different than what you would see as the undercover employee. Now, how do you, you know, I love that as a concept, but there's way more than the concept to make that happen. How do you keep every consumer, every team member, as you're talking about the grassroots level, first in every instance? 
Well, I do think, um, you know, as we're, as we're talking about this, I think of it, the image of a kaleidoscope, right? Like it's all of these different pieces that fall into place to make this absolutely beautiful picture that is ever changing because our organizations are ever changing. But I do think um, for me, I having been at the leadership level since I was 23 years old, I've been the director, the owner, the, the leader, the executive, and for me, I took a very hard swing into looking at the other perspective by doing undercover research, as, you, as you've alluded to. And I went and worked on the front lines of organizations that didn't know me as an expert in workplace culture. They didn't know me as a former executive. They knew me only as the polyester wearing employee who came through the door, like a multitude of others on this conveyor belt of frontline employees and went through the hard task of, of actually doing the tasks on the front lines. Yes, I cleaned a lot of bathrooms during this research. Like I have a whole new appreciation for restrooms in retail and restaurant and hospitality locations, but, um, but having done those tasks, but, but talking to employees in a way that they can share their true insights, share their true brilliance, and then look for the connection and oftentimes disconnection between what that messaging and what that experience is with what we have on the wall from what came down from when I and others have served on that executive row and said, this is what our kind of overall plan is. And it does take the ability to really be willing to audit that whole process, to look at really what's happening in hiring, really what's happening on the front line, what's happening at midterm management, what's happening in the that one branch that you have over in, you know, Sarasota kind of a thing that's still part of the organization to pull them in. And it requires being willing to be really humble and being willing to say, maybe it's not going as beautifully as I had planned, but we have to be realistic about what's happening so that we can get things kind of back into the right path, back onto the right path and put our kaleidoscope picture into a beautiful frame. So Nora, you threw a lot of things in this conversation. So I'm just going to break it down because I just have personally myself a lot of big takeaways, okay? And I'll start from towards the end of what you said because you answered a lot of questions I already had. One was I wanted to ask you about the mindset you threw in the word of humble or humility without which it does not open the doors. When you're talking about cleaning the bathrooms, a year and a half back when my amazing wife Chitra and myself, we moved to Houston as we were looking for homes, Chitra taught me this very unique thing. We always started by looking at the master bath. And you know, you know me, I'm not as smart. Chitra is the smarter one among two of us. And so the family is quite smart. Initially, I didn't get it. But then she asked me, Arjun, do you see yourself waking up in this room every morning? And I got it. Like the bathroom is such an important part in any culture. And then you started talking about the pieces right away. I could think of, let's say, before Christmas or any holiday when a family sits together with a puzzle. Heavens forbid, if we lost one piece, the piece is never complete. Mm -hmm. So I really want to go back. You started as a 23-year-old taking the whole picture. Is there any specific moment or instance that drove you into this lifelong search for undercover, total, every piece, 
kaleidoscope view, can you just refer back to any instant that helped you get to that wisdom? I think um, there were a couple of things that happened in my life that have put me in this position of saying, I always want to see the other piece of the, the other viewpoint, the other perspective. Um, one actually happened in college when I took a class. There's, um, as many people did, I took a couple of different pathways. I was going to be this, I was going to be that. You know, I started out in printing and publishing management and woof. So thankful I didn't follow that path. Magazines aren't really a big part of our current world. Um, but along the way, I signed up for a class on multi multiculturalism, uh, specifically in education, right? The multicultural work, uh, educational experience. And I had grown up, Arjun, in a very small town. I grew up in a town of 711 people who pretty much all look like me, right? This was, this was a very, you know, Wisconsin rural community, our greatest level of difference was that we were either Catholic or Lutheran. Uh, we still managed to fight about it. Um, but, and then I went to a small state school that only had, you know, 5,000 students and 9,000 people in the town. Again, everybody pretty much looked like me. And then I took this class. And as part of the class, you either needed to do tutoring for other students, right? You needed to go tutor at the local grade school or high school, or you could participate in a trip down to Mississippi, where over spring break, we went to Tupelo, Mississippi, and we worked in a group called Project Self-Help and Awareness, where we actually tutored kids there. We helped people with their roof. They had people teaching people how to fix up their homes, and we learned that along with them, taught them how to swim. There was this whole backstory to that. And in this experience, I was living in very socioeconomic disadvantaged group of people. It's the first time I experienced somebody being unwilling to serve me at a store because I was with this group of individuals that they did not believe were as equal mm -hmm. and as fair. And, and it's the first time I was in this really multicultural group and experienced seeing things from this very, very different lens. Uh, everything from, I mean, we could talk, we, I could spend an hour just talking about that. I mean, I, we marched and we got picketed by um, KKK representatives. It was just this really wildly different experience than I'd ever had. And I was only 19 years old at the time. And I had no idea that this was still possible at that time in the world, right? Oh. I'm, I'm over 40, but I'm not like 90, right? This isn't something that was going on in the ninth. This isn't my doing this in the 1940s. And so for me, I think that was really one of the biggest kind of um, shifts, one of the puzzle pieces that went in and said, wow, this world looks very different from a different angle. And then I had amazing CEOs that I got to work with early in my career. I think of Dave Boyer, who was the CEO at Playcon Plastics Thermoforming Corporation, and his perspective on walking out on the floor, being very engaged with frontline workers, we could not do a five-year, 10-year, 15-year celebration of an employee without Dave being front and center and making sure that he was the one mm -hmm. that shook the hand of the employee and said, thank you so much. And meeting CEOs like that also helped to fill in some of those puzzle pieces of people who really understood the importance of all the different perspectives and dynamics of an organization. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you're talking about the super CEO, 
right away I can see a billboard. There are CEOs that lead, and then there are CEOs that live the leadership. And if I was an entry level intern, let's say in the organization, seeing the CEO live the leadership and the culture makes such a big impact instead of him speaking and wowing me. Yeah, he, he absolutely did that. He absolutely lived the culture. And I'm still wowed by the town you grew up in 7-Eleven. And I'm just saying in my mind that anytime Nora lives town, they have to change the sign 7-10 now. <laughs> yeah. So taking these ideas, you know, a lot of individuals have great ideas. But ideas, unless you make them into plan, take them into action, does not work. So as you take plans on these actions, uh, plans to action, where the rubber meets the road, what are one or two secrets that you have to successfully cross the finish line every time? Uh, to successfully cross the finish line every time? Well, I think one of the big ones was doing this research project. And once mm -hmm. I committed, um, it started with the undercover candidate where I went on you know, over 250 job interviews across the country, not as myself. And it was a huge project to undertake. It was a financially expensive, it was expensive project. It was time consuming, it was rigorous. And for me, one of the ways to say, this is, this is my plan for it all. And this is my commitment to it is that I had somebody that I, I spoke to and said, this is my commitment. Somebody who I loved, honored, adored and respected who would hold me to it. And they mm. would check in and say, where are you on that? It was, it started out as a hundred. It was going to be a hundred interviews. And then I just got too curious. So it went up to 250 and having someone that I was checking in with who I had great respect for, who could push back against me. And I think for me, my announcing, sharing what I'm doing, especially when it's a big project with somebody that I really respect, who uh, will give me constructive feedback is always a way to get over the finish line. Wow. So you just went little over 100 to 250. So I have two follow-up questions. Yes. What is one thing that you learned that you would have never, ever learned without these 250 interviews? That's my question one. Mm -hmm. And second is, what was common in every one of these interviews? Yeah, so um, the thing that I wouldn't have learned and really one of the things I was after was has hiring on the whole, on the trend, shifted with the passage of time? Have we updated those practices to match our workplace culture and who we say we are and who we want to be as organizations across the country? And what I was, one of the things I was most surprised by is the fact that we have a lot of organizations still hiring like it's 1983. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't have ever guessed that. I wouldn't have realized how many organizations are asking some dated questions or who are kind of hiring the way that they were hired when they were hired at the start of their career, right? So I was surprised by that. Um, I would never have guessed that or learned that kind of on my own because everybody mm -hmm. thinks they're doing a great job of hiring. Um, and I've already like the second one, I'm going like, oh, what uh, the trend. Um, 
one, oh, I have a whole, I'm working on a whole book of the trends, but one of the trends is the fact that um, the, the organizations that have positive reviews in other areas of their business, I had a positive experience with as a candidate. So if I compare mm -hmm. um, XYZ, and I never disclosed the names of the organizations where I interviewed or, or where I worked as the undercover, but XYZ restaurant chain or XYZ a restaurant franchisee, a particular franchisee, and I look at their Yelp reviews mm -hmm. and I look at their other, and their Google reviews as a business, I can predict my experience as an employee mm -hmm. and as a candidate. There is a very strong correlation between customer experience and employee experience. And I think that that's um, fascinating unless you've got an organization gaming the system on their on their Google reviews and Yelp reviews. Um, but there definitely is correlation between those two. And it's worth um, looking at kind of how much our customer service is fed by our candidate service through the hiring process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you are talking about this, my mind is going in 500 directions on different CEOs I've talked to. And three one-liners are just coming back to me on recruiting. One is Lane Cardwell, Brinker Group, you know, was the head there. Mm -hmm. He talked about any time he would hire a candidate to work anywhere in the organization. If he didn't walk to, didn't want to work with the person himself, he would never put the person in. Mm -hmm. Secondly, Blaine Hurst at Panera, CEO, he told me that he never hired an individual. He always first figured out the puzzle, <coughs> very clear, and saw what pieces he had, he needed. Yeah. He only hired for the pieces. Because sometimes finding this amazing talent could change the whole piece. And that was not, didn't work. And finally, the third CEO, I forget his name, is, and so it's not my idea at all. <laughs> you know, showed me, how recruiting team members is more important than customer acquisition. And he took me through the whole parallel on both sides, like knowing clearly who they are, knowing clearly an employee retention plan even before you get there. So your hearts are there, not their butts. And I would never forget that his whole thought process was not only do I recruit, but I don't recruit till I figure out how do I get their hearts in the organization, not their butts. And that transitions me to the next question on team members is, you know, you're working from outside, which means you really have to influence not just people working for you, but leaders on whom you don't have any functional leverage. They have to come willingly with you. How do you get everybody across the finish line? How do you get everybody sold on a common shared vision? It's definitely easier in some organizations than others. Um, I, I immediately just thought of this uh, when I was working in-house yet, and I had a CEO who 100% had my back from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And the difference that that made in my joining that organization and make, being able to make some really fundamental changes to workplace culture mm -hmm. and how we operated. Um, 
just having people know that that strength and that support was there. Um, and it was a highly, uh, he was a very highly respected CEO. People respected him. And so when he was like, I deem this person to help you. And um, it, it made a huge difference in that organization. There's always some that will sit back and kind of cross their arms and think, oh, this person's only here for a short time. I'm just going to wait until they leave. And recognizing the ability to recognize when that is present and being willing to have a very candid conversation to say, what's, what's, the, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm-hmm. And what is the barrier? What am I not seeing? How can I pull them into the conversation so they can share with me what their, what their hesitations are so that we can address them? And that if it's, you know, if it's me or if it's a larger um, systemic issue or systematic issue within the organization, how do we work through that? But anytime I'm in an organization, either when I've been in the seat officially, but also when I come in as a consultant or as a speaker, it's, it's making sure that the trust is getting built sooner rather than later, that I acknowledge the fact, I don't know everything about your organization. That's one of the beautiful things about having outside eyes is I don't have all of the, oh, we can't possibly change that. I don't know better than to suggest that we change that. <laughs> Whereas if I had been in the organization for a long time, per- perhaps I would have picked up on that meta message that that's, that's not something we touch, right? That has been in place since 1902 and we don't mess with it kind of a thing. So I think it's really about bringing people along, asking for ideas. I say I'm often not the smartest person in the room, right? I'm rarely the smartest person in the room. I'm the person to facilitate the conversation, tie ideas together, and help to cultivate the seed of an idea into something that can be a really amazing experience instead of um, instead of saying, no, we tried that two years ago. It can't work, right? So for me, it's really, my job is often cultivating an idea that is present. We have so many amazing ideas present within our organizations from the person who is sweeping up the floor to the person who's cleaning up the PL. There are so many brilliant ideas that sometimes all we need to have is the right person to listen in the right way and then reframe it for a different person's experience. So I think those are, that's my... I love that. My 72 cents on that idea. I always give you more than the two cents. I was over And that to me, what I really like is, you know, many a time, if it's your idea, it doesn't work. Whereas if you take internal ideas and have different people champion, and then what I liked was reframe and get people to rally around. Yeah. And I think especially in, in industries that are that are highly, um, well, incestuous for lack of a better term. We, we have to, we only hire people who worked in restaurant, you know, right? And so you only hire people who worked in restaurant, worked in restaurant, worked in restaurant, worked in restaurant. And so we're not getting the ideas from oil and gas, from mining, from insurance and financial services, from all of these different industries. So when somebody like myself comes in, who's crisscrossed through blue collar and white collar purposefully throughout my career, so that I have those different experiences, you can say, well, okay, this is what this other industry has done for eons. What if we took that and reshaped it for us? Mm-hmm. You know, take this as a germ of an idea. And then somebody in the back will almost always be like, oh, I suggested that like three years ago. I'm like, great, let's bring it forward now, right? Like, what, what if 
what 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 could happen? Yeah, and it's not the idea; it's the plan, the process, and the implementation that makes it successful. Exactly, a great idea without the execution is is worth the, only the paper it's written on. So this next section, I call that the BS section of the podcast, where okay. I would invite you for one BS. But I define BS a little diff differently. I define BS as bragging shamelessly. <laughs> so what is one BS that you want to share about you, anything that you are most proud of that you want to share with all of us? Um, oh my gosh. So, so BS that comes to mind. One of the things I'm proud of is, is the fact that I can come up with new ideas like this one. So with a restaurant chain that I was working with, one of the challenges we have when, with um, hiring is that at different times in the economy's lifespan, we have this plethora of candidates and then we have no candidates, right? Like we happen to be in the desert of this right now, but we'll have these times. And at some points, customers or um, organizations started saying it was okay not to get back to people about the status of their can of their application. And I understand when you're getting 300 applications for four positions, that it's a lot to get back to all of those people. Except there are some industries, like in this case with a restaurant, where your candidates are also customers or potential customers. And for me, getting the HR recruiting team working with the marketing team to make sure that because HR would say, oh, we don't have the budget for this. I'm like, okay, that's okay. It's really a marketing issue. Let's pull marketing in. Let's partner aside with them. And then when we, we started sending no thank you letters, very nice, beautifully written, no thank you letters to the candidates we didn't consider that included a coupon mm -hmm. and said, we're sorry that this one didn't work right? We will keep your application on file. Hopefully this will work down the road, but we want to stay friends. Please come and have lunch with us, right? And a coupon to do that so that it, it builds the, the candidate experience. Their story about their recruiting process is a positive one, even though they didn't get the job. Mm -hmm. And we may have actually brought in additional customers that we wouldn't have had and we definitely didn't cost ourselves any customers. A lot of our hiring processes in along the way, if they get lazy or sloppy and we don't get back to people or get back to them timely, we actually cost them, we actually cost ourselves customers in addition to costing ourselves candidates. And I've had more than one, one uh, candidate in the last month tell me, and now I don't even want to shop there, right? When they didn't get, like, now I don't even want to go there for coffee. I'm like, oh, oh double hit. So one of my, my, my brag moments is this idea to include this coupon. We have a little tear off. It's a beautifully done piece because we partnered with the marketing team graphics on it and, and cultivated so that we have an ongoing pool of candidates that don't resent us <laughs> for saying no before, right? So those types of things, I'm very proud of that. It was a beautiful piece. Awesome. So if you take all your wisdom, all your knowledge, and as you're moving forward, you have a men in black moment where you have to erase every wisdom, but keep only one. What is the one wisdom and only one insight that you want to take forward with you in your journey ahead? From this moment in time forward, um, 
everything in my life or everything in my professional life. You can see my analytical brain is kicking in. I feel like there's a spreadsheet. Right. You, get only one. you get only one. Rest is gone. Um, number one is going to be find the joy. Okay. Find yes. the joy wherever it is. Love that. Absolutely. And on that spirit, I think it allows me great joy to transition to the next question, which is, if tomorrow you get an invite and all of a sudden you see that you are meeting a 16-year-old Nora, a 100-year-old Nora, and you now, first is, where do you think this conversation would be happening? And secondly, what would the conversation, conversation be like? Like, what would each of you be asking or telling each other? Um, I want the con I want the conversation. My hope is that the conversation happens in um, Paris or London or um, somewhere that shares global perspective. Okay. Um, because I want my 16 year old self to see that possibility. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, I grew up in this tiny little town. 7-Eleven. Free Google. <laughs> and and um, I had a really, I had really big dreams and big ideas in a very small town. And as a result, it didn't always feel comfortable. And I would like my 16-year-old self to experience the grander scale in a global perspective. Um, my 100-year-old self, I hope, will still be up for making the journey. <laughs> so Knowing you, absolutely. She yeah, <laughs> and health-wise, too. But also, um, something happened when I was in my 40s that I realized I was getting more boring with age. I, I love what I do for work. I love workplace culture and leadership. I will read about it. I will write about it. I will speak about it. I will study it. And I'd gone to a cocktail party as a fundraiser at the Denver Art Museum. And I remember as we're mixing and mingling conversation starters with other people. And I realized, as it turns out, most people don't want to talk about the impact that your hiring processes have on your workplace culture and the long-term strategy of your organization. Weird, right? Mm -hmm. like, so I realized I was getting more boring with age and my scope of, of life view was narrowing to my work. And so I made a commitment that I would do, you know, 40 new things before I turned 40 and 45 new things before I've turned 45, 50 new things. And now I make it a life event where I'm trying to do 50 new things every year, an introduction to new things. I'm not going to become the expert at most of these. Like I took cello lessons, right? I, it, which ended up being two things because I had to learn how to read music in bass clef. I'd forgotten that part because I read music in treble clef um, and trying new things. And so my hope is that that hundred year old version of me is telling stories about the 50 new things that they learned that year and that they tried and experienced, even though it's gonna to get tougher and tougher to do between now and when I turn 100. Awesome. Um, so I would hope that we bring in all of those different perspectives into that conversation. Um, yeah, that's what I would imagine for that conversation. I love that. And you know, for all of you listening, Nora is 
one of the most avid dog lovers I know. And the moment Nora said Paris, I could visualize Nora 100 walking in with 101 Dalmatians. Oh. <laughs> and I thought Paris was the perfect place for her to do exactly that. And knowing her, she would do it. So yeah. Nora, to wrap up this conversation, two last things. One is, is there anything we didn't talk about you want to share? And secondly, you were very kind to answer every question I asked. If you have any question, don't make it too difficult. If you have for me, I would love to try to answer it. Uh, well, the one is, I mean, there's a million things I could talk about. There's, uh, I thankfully have had lots of leaders in my life who have shown me great examples of, of work ethic, of work innovation. You know, I think of um, the, the boss I had at um, Total Logistic Control when I worked in third-party logistics, one of the best CEOs I've ever worked with, one of the best interviews I've ever been through was with him. Think of Mark Schuster at Rural Insurance Companies, who we had to go through layoffs together and, and, and leading that in the 1990s and how hard that was, but how much easier with a strong leader. And I just think of all of these, but then I, of course, like everybody, have these leaders that I've worked with that weren't awesome. You know, the person who had to mention in every conversation that they had a PhD. And I just think if you have to mention it that often, the work isn't coming through, right? <laughs> but but the thing is, all of those people also taught me something. So I guess the, my last word before I ask you my question is that regardless of if you have really strong, amazing leaders in your life, like I had it at TLC and at PlayCon and at Rural, or if you have weaker um, leaders in your life, people who are teaching you what not to do when you get into that position, I, you're still learning from them. You're just learning the differences between how you want to be seen, remembered, and lead, and how you don't. So I think that that's always an opportunity. And what I want to know, Arjun, is out of out of you know you've done a lot of these. We're we're well over 150 now, which is incredible, and you've had these great conversations. As you've gone along, is there any guest? who has made you laugh that you've had to edit it out because I was unsuccessful in that and I can in life get you to laugh most of the time. But have you ever had to edit out because you just started enjoying it so much that you've lost all poison presence and you started to laugh? Now, first of all, I was thinking you would ask me a question that if there are 711 people in town, 98 left, how many are left? I was expecting <laughs> that question, but I'm glad you didn't go there. No, it hasn't happened because, you know, what I realized is, you know, when people come and have a conversation and that's the part where I realize it's a conversation, I feel every person realizes conversation is both a responsibility and an opportunity, okay? Because the podcast is not about numbers, it's about one more person, you know, and I would bet there's more than one person as they listen to you and I talk with you leading and I'm just being here and just moving my hands, they'll get this idea or a nugget, which will be, as I call, the first domino movement, which moves all dominoes. So I really think the conversation usually gets decently serious, but on an editing part, I just have to confess that there are times I start marking that this I have to edit. Primarily, if the conversation gets to me-centric by a person, okay? 
And that to me is very important because I started by putting half my face on the podcast logo to remind me it's never about me. It's not about my ego, not my podcast. It's together what we create. And I really feel I have a responsibility to even one person who will choose to listen to the podcast to make sure it's about them, not us. And that's the part where there were some tough conversations and we dropped things or hesitated to air that one podcast for a while because you just have to take ownership. Like, it's just like, you know, when we take a pizza or food or anything outside, if I'm not going to eat it, why will I give it to my guests? So it's a totally different answer to what you wanted, but the laughing hasn't happened yet. So it's uh, that's good. I, I have a strong impulse on laughter. So I know that I would probably not have had that same track record. I love the fact that half of your face, oh, the reason for half of your face being on the cover is that it's not about you. It's your only part of the equation. There is nothing you do that does not have incredible thought behind it. And, and the reason why it's one of the things I so appreciate about you. It's really um, phenomenal. And I do hope that a domino is falling and someone is thinking, oh, I'm going to go look at the world in a different way. I would be delighted with that outcome. Absolutely. And it will happen. So Nora, thank you for an amazing conversation. And as I summarize everything, you know, my big takeaway from this conversation is it's not about how smart you are. It's all about you wanting to make a lasting, sustainable impact and for which you must get to reinvent every organization from every angle. And that's the part where a lot of us business leaders, after the first, fifth, sixth job, after you get the 50th birthday cake, we start thinking, I know most. I don't have to show up for preseason. I don't have to show up for practice. Just show up and just pick the Super Bowl and leave. I don't think it happens in the corporate world. I don't know what happens in football another year, another <laughs> lifetime. But that's the big thing. What I learned today is this desire to get the full picture and having the discipline. And discipline to me means you have to get to that level figuratively and literally to cleaning the restroom and building up that gets you the full picture. Because once you get the full picture, I think that's when you make amazing plans and the journey forward becomes a sustained success. So th thank you again, Nora. Truly appreciate this. And this, I really enjoyed. And thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.